Uh, good evening, everybody. Hello, welcome. Uh, uh, my name is Scott Dwyer. I'm the executive director for Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York and its Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, welcome to another evening lecture here at 54 Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan. Uh, remember, if you are joining us virtually uh, and you have any questions during the lecture, uh, please leave them in the Q&A box. Uh, we will be monitoring the Q&A during the lecture, so don't worry about saving your questions to the end. Um, if you're joining us in person, thank you, first off. Uh, you'll be able to ask your questions at the end of the lecture. We'll pass a microphone around. Uh, we'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, but remember, uh, the views of the speaker are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York um, or its Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, let me introduce tonight's speaker. Uh, Christian McBurney is the author of six books and many articles on the American Revolutionary War history. Uh, he is president of the George Washington American Revolution Roundtable of the District of Columbia and manages the online journal Small State Big History uh, devoted to the history of Rhode Island. Uh, he practices law in Washington, D.C. Uh, today, he will be speaking to us about his book, Dark Voyage, An American Privateer's War on Britain's African Slave Trade. Please join me in welcoming Christian McBurney to the party. Uh, thank you, and uh, thank you, everyone, for attending in person and uh, for you uh, on Zoom as, as well. Uh, yeah, this is my third time speaking here, and I think I have a good relationship with the tavern. As a matter of fact, the uh, painting of uh, George Washington rebuking Charles Lee there is the cover of my last book, which is called The uh, Outrageous Treason and Unfair Court Martial of Major General Charles Lee. But that came out just after, before the pandemic, so didn't get as much play. But uh, great to have that painting on that book. And I refute a lot of the... Um, uh, legends about that, including that meeting. But uh, this book is a, a di very different book. As a matter of fact, uh, no one's ever done a book like this before. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And uh, I always like to do books about the American Revolution that are different. And uh, by the way, they're for sale over there. And I'll be glad to um, sell you one at a very good price. That's the best price you'll find anywhere. <clears throat> and I'll be glad to sign it afterwards. Um, Okay, uh, the contrast is uh, glaring in the extreme. On the one hand, the American Revolutionary War from 1775 to 1783 was a glorious struggle for the causes of freedom, equality, liberty, and the dignity of the individual. Thomas Jefferson's rousing words in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness have inspired millions across the globe for more than 250 years. And uh, the uh, words resonate today in, in Ukraine as well. The word men originally wasn't intended to apply only to adult white males, <clears throat> but over time its meaning has been extended to uh, women and people of all races, colors, and creeds. Democracy, the rule of the many and not just the few, representative and balanced government, the rule of law, these are just some of the gifts that the American Revolution has given us. And at the same time, uh, the American Revolutionary War was about to commence. One of the worst tragedies in world history was continuing unabated. That's the African slave trade. European and American merchants sent ships across the ocean to purchase African captives 
and carry them to the Caribbean islands, Brazil and the North American mainland. Uh, at the time, Great Britain was, dominated the Atlantic slave trade, but all many of uh, European countries uh, uh, were engaged in this, and including uh, what would become the United States. Between 1771 and 1775 alone, uh, on average, each year, more than 90,000 African captives were carried across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to the New World. There, the uh, Africans were forced into a lifetime of unpaid work and permanent bondage, uh, with their children consigned to the same unimaginably uh, miserable fate. The captives were taken away from their families in Africa, never to see them again. Thousands died during the voyage across the Atlantic called the Middle Passage. It was a horrible, abominable trade, and it's mind-boggling to believe that it ever existed, uh, especially by today's moral standards. Here is a, uh, a chart. You can see that Great Britain, uh, through the history of the slave trade, was by well, the greatest slave trading nation. Overall, actually, Portugal was number one, and, and uh, that was mostly Brazil. They started a lot earlier than Great Britain and ended a lot later. Uh, to Great Britain's credit, they did end in the slave trade in 1807. <clears throat> America ended January 1, 1808, at least legally. Uh, and you can see uh, the United States is a, you know, a smaller player back then. <clears throat> Here's an um, image of a British slave ship. And you could see the lower right corner, they're kind of celebrating their participation in the slave trade. And the lower left corner, the slave ship is arriving at the British Caribbean island, at a British Caribbean island like Jamaica or Antigua. That's where most of the enslaved people went. In the first three quarters of the 18th century, again, Great Britain was the world's leading slave trading country. The year 1775, so important in American lore with the Battle of Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, was the zenith of Britain's slave trade. On the average, uh, uh, from British merchants from Liverpool and London and Bristol annually sponsored about 150 to 200 voyages, uh, and they uh, carried on the average about 40,000 captives across the ocean. Uh, they landed, uh, most of them, again, in the British colonial possessions in the Caribbean islands. And in the quarter century prior to the American Revolution, Great Britain's dominance uh, peaked. You can see the numbers here. That's just a 25-year period. Great Britain is clearly the leading slave trading country. A British slaving voyage typically had three legs, thus giving rise to the uh, triangular trade, starting with Britain, uh, the slave ship sailed to the African coast, carrying goods mainly manufactured in Britain, such as gunpowder and muskets and textiles. Uh, and they were used to trade for African captives. Here's a uh, slave trading scene. Um, on the lower right, you, you can see the slave ship in the, uh, in the harbor. Uh, then the ship carried the captive across the Atlantic Ocean and the dreaded Middle Passage, a six week or so voyage. Uh, the ship's destination typically was a Caribbean position, possession of Britain. Uh, Barbados was the first one. Then uh, Jamaica was now the biggest one, and Antigua was important as well. And there, the surviving captives were sold to local plantation owners. Next, the ship's captain purchased sugar and other products created from sugar. 
What other uh, products were created from sugar? Rum. Rum? What's another one? Molasses. Molasses, that's right. I heard that on the Zoom too. There's some people real. Uh, sugar was the key. Uh, Europe craved sugar, which was almost unknown to most Europeans before the 17th century. England became the major consumer and English people uh, love sugar in their cookies, cakes, tea, and coffee. Have an English wife, I know that's true. Actually, I like sugar more than she does. The value of uh, sugar imports and related products, molasses and rum, from the British Caribbean far outstripped the value of the imports of tobacco from the colonies of Virginia and Maryland and rice from South Carolina. Sugar remained Great Britain's most important import until 1820. Slave labor was indispensable to the production of sugar. Uh, plantation owners used gangs of enslaved workers to cultivate, harvest, and process sugar cane into sugar. Uh, it, the uh, plantation owners staggered, had staggered planting periods. So every uh, six months, there was always a uh, harvest going on. That was the toughest period. You had to get the cane into the boiling vats within 24 hours or the cane would spoil. It was uh, brutally hard work. All this great increase in our treasure, wrote a British observer as early as 1729, proceeds chiefly from the labor of Negroes in the plantations. If slave labor was the key to developing and maintaining successful, uh, successful uh, Brit uh, plantations, the African slave trade was the key to the continuation of slave labor. This was because of the need of sugar plantation owners to constantly replenish their new captives. An outstanding feature of British Caribbean plantation slavery in the mid 18th century was that natural births of enslaved people failed to exceed natural and unnatural deaths. The primary cause of this situation was that uh, death rates among the enslaved in the British Caribbean was uh, shockingly high. Uh, poor food, primitive living conditions, overwork left uh, enslaved people vulnerable to deadly diseases and the child mortality rate was also high. The first three years or so of a newly imported enslaved individual's life called the seasoning period took a heavy toll. Arriving in a weakened state after the arduous middle passage, the new arrivals had to adjust to new work, food, diseases, and rules. An estimated 20% of them died in the seasoning period. Here's another uh, slave trading scene. And uh, this one's actually more accurate than the prior one because uh, the intermediaries in the slave trade were often Africans on the coast. Uh, you can see uh, the family members in the foreground. Uh, the small ship is being rowed by uh, free workers called Grumetas. And you can see the enslaved people being brought out there to the white European ship, of course. They were the ones who had the money. There's a infamous uh, drawing of uh, called tight packing aboard uh, slave ships and you know the holds below how many they could um, fit now you know slave ship owners didn't want their captives to die that they would lose money it was all about making money but uh, still some got too greedy here's a uh, olada equiano and he wrote one of the only uh, narratives of a middle passage voyage that we have and he uh, actually moved, got uh, purchased by a British officer who took him to London and he gained his freedom. And he wrote a, a very uh, important uh, autobiography and became an abolitionist. So he was well known in the day. 
Now, British Caribbean planters intentionally provided their enslaved people with minimal food, shelter, and clothing. They made the mind-boggling calculus that it was cheaper uh, to uh, buy replacement workers from Africa than to spend money taking care of the uh, captives they had brought over already. As a result of the high mortality rate among the enslaved and the low natural birth rate, British Caribbean planters had to import massive numbers of uh, African uh, captives just to maintain their enslaved population. The British slave trade was thus vital to replenish the slave stock of the British colonial plantations. And here's some numbers by, uh, by the islands of the ones who survived. Perhaps the most devastating statistic is to compare the number of Africans carried to the British uh, Caribbean to their populations when slavery was prohibited. Historian Adam Hochschild writes, when slavery ended in the United States in 1865, less than half a million slaves imported over the centuries had grown to a population of nearly 4 million, okay? By comparison, notes the same author, when slavery ended in the British Caribbean in 1834, total slave imports of well over 2 million left a surviving slave population of only about 670,000. After reviewing his statistics, Hochschild concludes the British Caribbean was a slaughterhouse. Readers uh, may be surprised to learn that colonial merchants in what would become the United States overall played a comparatively small role in the African slave trade. While the slave trade lasted, they carried a total of about 292,000 captives across the Atlantic and outfitted about 2.4% of all slaving voyages. Here's an advertisement by a firm uh, of which Henry Lawrence was a named partner. Henry Lawrence uh, probably handled more enslaved people than any other person in colonial times. He was in Charleston and uh, he would buy captives from ships and then resell them to planters. He became president of the Continental Congress and uh, was a supporter of General Washington for a couple of years. Uh, Rhode Island, which is where I'm from, uh, was the colony that dominated the slave trade among the 13 mainland colonies. More than half of the North American slave trading voyages in colonial times emanated from Rhode Island, mostly from Newport, uh, with the rest coming mostly from New York City, Boston, and other coastal New England ports. Now, why did tiny Rhode Island dominate the slave trade is not clear. Uh, Rhode Island lacked a large hinterland that New York had. They could go, had all these farmers up the Hudson Valley. And Philadelphia had that so, much, so many great abundant farms uh, across the Schuylkill. And uh, Charleston had, uh, of course, all the rice and indigo plantations. Uh, so merchants in Newport had to look around. And then they started noticing, hey, we could, we could distill this... Uh, um, sugar into uh, rum, and they sold a lot of it to New Englanders. Most of it they sold to New Englanders, but they also found a very profitable outlet, the slave trade. And Rhode Island slave merchants, when they or captains when they arrived on the west coast of Africa, were called rum men. Yeah, now Here's a great painting in the St. Louis Art Museum. It's called Sea Captains Carousing in Suriname. Uh, reportedly, there are four future Rhode Island captain, uh, governors <laughs> in, the, uh, in the image. You can see some uh, African um, uh, 
um, captives. It's hard to see from this angle, actually. Uh, this guy's doing something naughty in uh, somebody's pocket, and he's getting, he's having a bad day, that kind of thing. Now, while Rhode Island was only a small player in the worldwide slave trade prior to the American Revolution, carrying on average 2,400 African captives per year, as the decades passed, the numbers became substantial. And all over 59,000 Africans were involuntarily taken aboard Rhode Island ships in the colonial period. The great majority of those went to the British Caribbean, not to the United States. Uh, and the human suffering Rhode Island slavers caused African captives and their families is impossible to measure. But things were beginning to change. The American Revolution was a crucial catalyst for the worldwide anti-slavery movement. It was in fact, prior to the outbreak of the Civil War, the most important event in America supporting the anti-slavery cause. When the rebellion against crown rule uh, began, there was little anti-slavery activity anywhere in the world, including in England. Their, their abolitionist uh, movement really didn't get started until 1787. As with any great worldwide movement, the anti-slavery campaign made slow progress in fits and starts but it definitely made progress as a result of the American Revolution. Before the war, uh, slavery existed in every one of the uh, 13 colonies. Uh, New York was the biggest uh, slaveholding state in the North. After the war, mostly through legislation, each state in the North eventually ended the institution of slavery and all states banned the importation of African captives. This was probably the first time in world history where something like this had occurred. The American Revolution thus proved to be a major leap forward for the cause of ending the African slave trade, as well as slavery itself. But there was a long road ahead, especially uh, given that the South uh, kept, kept its slave institution. With the uh, American colonists denouncing the British plot to enslave them by imposing taxes without representation, it's not surprising that some whites were moved to question the plight of those who's who they had actually enslaved in their midst. Historian W.E.D. E.B. Dubois put it more bluntly, the new philosophy of freedom and the rights of man, which formed the cornerstone of the revolution, made even the dullest realize that at the very least, the slave trade and the struggle for liberty were not consistent. As early as 1763, the great patriot orator James Otis of Massachusetts, in an influential pamphlet arguing that colonists should not be uh, taxed without their consent, asserted that there were laws higher than acts of parliament and the parliament. And uh, while not necessary to make his case, he suddenly uh, got into race relations. He exclaimed, the colonists are by the law of nature free born as indeed are all men, white or black. Does it follow that tis right to enslave a man because he is black? Speaking of the African slave trade, he said, nothing better can be said in favor of a trade that is the most shocking violation of the law of nature. So this is the first time that you're starting to hear this kind of talk uh, really in, in the Western world. Here's another um, uh, pamphlet, one of the best-selling pamphlets uh, in colonial times. It was actually focused on uh, the Gatsby, the burning of the Gatsby, which is a Rhode Island event, uh, arguing it was an important uh, opposition to British tyranny. In the fourth edition, uh, John Allen, who was a uh, a, a preacher, congregational minister, stuck on about four or five paragraphs opposing slavery and opposing the slave trade. So there's there's more and more of this. 
<clears throat> in the lead up to the American Revolution, almost every North American colony's legislature passed a law to limit the importation of African enslaved people into the colonies. But in London, uh, they revoked all of those laws uh, because they didn't want to harm the uh, British slave trade. Uh, my new book um, brings together the glory of the American Revolutionary War and the horror of the African slave trade in one tale. And the tale is told through the extraordinary voyage of the uh, privateer ship, the Marlborough, to West Africa. And they had the bold goal of attacking British slave trade interests in Africa. Now, why would a privateer sail to West Africa? Privateers typically sailed to the Caribbean to capture British ships or to the Canadian coast to capture British supply ships trying to supply their army. But Africa, no privateer was known to go there before. The story starts in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, where John Brown, the main investor and mastermind uh, behind the voyage lived. He was a member of the Brown family, one of the most important mercantile families in Providence. In 1772, he organized and led the burning of the British Revenue Gatsby, which I said uh, earlier was uh, one of the first uh, violent acts of resistance against British tyranny. He was also an early investor in a nearby iron foundry that manufactured about 1,000 cannons. Uh, during the war. When the war started, he generated more profits as a military contractor for the Continental Congress, uh, buying uh, um, clothing and gunpowder. Here's a portrait of him actually held in the New York uh, Historical Society here in New York City. <clears throat> in 1776 and 1777, Brown got really rich as an investor in privateers. During the, excuse me, during the war, the Continental Navy really wasn't a match for the Royal Navy, which was the most powerful Navy in the world at the time. America's most effective weapon at sea by far was privateering, the operation of privately owned commerce raiders. From British ships, Americans captured gunpowder, weapons, food, blankets, cloth for uniforms, and other supplies desperately needed by the Continental Army. Uh, privateers were not pirates. Pirates operated outside of any government oversight and solely for their own personal interests. Privateers were sanctioned by a government to attack only enemy shipping. Uh, and they were supposed to be loyal uh, to the country that commissioned them. Uh, once an enemy vessel was captured, the captain of the privateer would typically select from his crew a prize master and a small prize crew to sail the crew uh, back to a safe port, let's say Providence, Rhode Island. And there, there'd be an admiralty court. And if you were a white male, you could be a member of the jury and you'd have to decide, was this a proper uh, uh, seizure of a ship and the cargo? If it was an enemy ship, it would, it would be proper. Actually, Babcock, uh, the captain of the Marlborough, later in the war, he actually captured a uh, Dutch ship, which they were allies, whoops. So he lost that case, but uh, the Dutch ship was going into Ireland to supply Ireland. So uh, the court allowed uh, him to keep the proceeds for the cargo. But in any case, um, uh, once uh, the uh, court came down that it was a good prize, everything would be sold at auction. So the ship would be sold, all the cargo would be sold. 50% of the proceeds typically went to the investors like John Brown and 50% would go to the privateers, officers, and crew. Here's an advertisement of an auction after a, a capture by a privateer. This is in Baltimore. 
Now, many who enlisted with an American privateer had mixed motives of patriotism and economic self-interest. Uh, Christopher Prince, when he joined the crews of New England privateers, wrote that he had two motives in mind. One was for the freedom of my country, and the other was to enjoy the luxuries of life. But if privateers were honest with themselves, they would admit that uh, the decision to go privateering was primarily financially oriented. Continental Navy and Army officers bemoaned the thousands of sailors who signed on to privateering cruises rather than less lucrative postings in the uh, continental military. Yet privateers sometimes uh, engaged in fierce contests with the Royal Navy warships as well as British and loyalist privateers. The captain of the Marlborough, George Babcock, in his career never shrank from combat from the enemy. He fought uh, five fierce battles against well-armed enemy ships and one against a Royal Navy sloop. In the early years of the war, the Royal Navy failed to uh, devote substantial resources to protect the British merchant fleet. As a result, American privateers scoured the British trade routes almost at will, and they seized numerous enemy merchant ships sailing between Britain and both the Caribbean and Canada. Soon Providence, uh, Rhode Island, became awash in surplus goods and supplies. The Reverend Ezra Stiles from Newport wrote that some 40 prizes had been brought into Providence by October 76, all but three of which had been engaged in the sugar trade between Britain and its Caribbean colonies. Young John Howland returned to Providence in early 1777, after he performed grueling duty with George Washington's army, almost half starved that year. He recalled the year uh, 1776 in Rhode Island was mostly employed in privateering and many whom I had left in poor circumstances were now rich men. The wharves in Providence were crowded with large ships from Jamaica and other islands loaded with rich products. Here's a map of uh, Providence uh, where the ships would come into. Now, while privateering was risky, the rewards could be phenomenal. Uh, I discovered by uh, reviewing John Brown's privateering records that it cost him relatively little to fit out and pay for a privateer compared to what he could bring in by capturing a merchant ship. And this is one of the first times that's really been shown. On average, it cost Brown about 3,300 pounds to purchase and outfit a ship that includes the sails, the rigging, the cannon, the ship itself. But on, uh, if he captured a British merchant ship, which he often did, those could be sold uh, for 9,000 pounds. So just one capture more than paid for all of his investment in a privateer. So he became very rich. He had 11 privateers. But warning signs were ahead. The days of the easy conquests of 1776 and early 1777 ended. The powerful Royal Navy warships uh, began protecting commercial vessels by convoying uh, merchant ships. and and uh, seizing privateers. Most of the crews of the uh, uh, jails here in New York City, which had the most prisoners and the most deaths from prison, were from privateers. Uh, merchant ships, especially slave ships, also started to uh, arm themselves with more cannon. Brown decided in the second half of 1777 that uh, with his new wartime riches, he could afford to construct a large privateer that carried 20 cannon. That was big for a privateer. This, that first small one, I said, that had cost 3,300 pounds, was only an eight, only carried eight cannon. Such a privateer could avoid being captured by a British sloop of war and defeat armed merchantmen, uh, merchantmen. but he still could not deal with um, a 32-gun British frigate. Those were very powerful ships, very fast too. 
so we didn't want to, to send his new ship to the Caribbean where it could get captured. What to do? Uh, he had the brilliant idea of sending his privateer to the coast of West Africa. He figured correctly that the Royal Navy was overstretched. It had to transport the British Army and its ships, convoy merchant ships, blockade American ports, seek and destroy privateers, and most importantly, watch over for a potential invasion by Britain's longtime enemy, France, across the uh, English Channel. So the Royal Navy had few ships remaining to patrol the African coast and to protect British slave forts and slave ships. Uh, now, it took a, an experienced privateer and investor, privateer investor and a bold man to decide to send a privateer to distant Africa. But there were a lot of bold investors in New England and privateers in those days. What gave Brown the edge was his experience in the slave trade and, and being in Rhode Island, which was the main slave trading colony. So he could therefore speak with returning slave ship captains. Hey, did you see any uh, slave ships patrolling, excuse me, Royal Navy warships patrolling the African coast? The answer came back, no. In addition, uh, Brown himself was an experienced slave trade investor. He invested in two slave slaving ventures, uh, one in, prior to the war, one in 1763 and one in 1769. Uh, the second one, uh, excuse me, the, the first one was the ship Sally, which was commanded by Isaac Hopkins. Uh, he was one of Brown's sea captains, and he became the commander in chief of the Continental Navy. But uh, this particular slave trade voyage was one of the deadliest in North American history. Of the 196 Africans purchased by Hopkins, at least 109, 109 uh, died, perished during the voyage. Uh, he, he just was not experienced and didn't know what, what he was doing. <clears throat> now, a uh, slave trading voyage to, was daunting in part because a slave ship, which was loaded with goods to trade for captives, was typically not large enough to carry all the food and fresh drinking water the crew needed for a long voyage. And the slave uh, captain would have to obtain more food and water by negotiating with local uh, Africans. That didn't Ter Brown, though, because he had experienced, uh, uh, you know, African slave trading. Now, a privateer sent to Africa could attack and plunder slave trading posts established by British slave traders. So the British <clears throat> slave trade, they like to rely on forts where the captives were brought in. Most of the captives were taken during wars in Africa between African tribes, <laughs> brought to the coast then sold to intermediaries on the coast, and then sold to uh, African, uh, excuse me, the slave trading forts. So if you had a British ship that was coming by, they could stop at one fort and get all of the captives they needed at one fort. So that was a real advantage. Whereas Hopkins went, uh, you know, he went along the coast, got bought two at one place, three at another place, one at another village. And it took so long that a lot of the captives uh, perished in the terrible heat. So uh, at these forts, they kept a lot of goods for African slave trade, like uh, uh, alcohol or guns and muskets. So they could, the privateers could plunder that stuff. Uh, in addition, um, uh, there would be slave ships in, uh, up the rivers in Africa, British slave ships starting to do trade. So they would be surprised to see a privateer so far from their home port. 
If Brown was really fortunate, he figured, his privateer could capture a large British slave ship filled with African captives, ready to sail to the Caribbean islands. In such a situation, the uh, crew may have been on the verge of cashing in. They might have been almost a year on the African coast or having left uh, England. But Brown's privateer could simply step in and snatch the slave ship and its human cargo as a prize of war. A prize crew from Brown's privateer would be ordered to sail the slave ship in the Middle Passage and try to arrive at a safe port, preferably a French colonial possession. Uh, they also had their plantations. Or Charleston, South Carolina, or Savannah, Georgia. There, the enslaved Af surviving Africans on board would be sold. They would be sold just like any other human, uh, excuse me, any other non-human cargo. Then Brown and his investors would really cash in. So at that point, they, they became slave traders. A few other patriots considered an expedition to Africa. One of them was John Paul Jones, who by the end of the war was the Continental Navy's greatest hero. Here's Jones. Uh, while stationed in Newport, Rhode Island, he wrote a letter to Congress saying, hey, I'd like to command a small expedition of three ships, go to Africa. And uh, he said, I quote, he was sure that his ships would carry all before them and give a blow to the English-African trade, which they would not soon recover. The expedition didn't get off the ground for various reasons, but uh, Jones knew what he was talking about. As a young man, his first two voyages were on slave trading voyages outside. It started in uh, Whitehaven, England. He ended the second one before the voyage ended and, and never went into it. He, again, he didn't like it. Uh, Brown was also aware from reading newspapers that beginning in early 1777, American privateers started to capture British slave ships, many with African captives on board. Uh, there was one desperate fight between a British slave ship on its voyage had just left England and it was intercepted by an American privateer off of Portugal. They had a real desperate fight. A lucky American shot exploded the magazine on the British ship and it exploded. All on board died except for three. But most of the time, the Americans would sail out of French colonial possessions. They'd only go for about an hour. They'd spot a British slave ship coming into Barbados, and uh, they would capture it and then uh, take it to a French colony and, and sell the captives there. Brown had a new 20-gun, uh, three-masted brig constructed in Providence in late 1777. He named the privateer Marlborough after the Duke of Marlborough, a descendant of Winston Churchill. Here's a great model that probably uh, a ship looked like what the Marlboro would have looked like, you know, fairly small with a uh, high uh, upper deck. This is actually in a German museum, so they kindly allowed me to use this image. Uh, to make a voyage a success, Brown had to find a courageous ship captain, and he found one in George Waite Babcock of Exeter, Rhode Island. Babcock hailed from Exeter, which is a landlocked town, had a lot of small farms, but it was close to a small thriving port called now uh, Wickford in North Kingston. After moving to Wickford, Babcock showed leadership skills by forming and commanding an independent company that awed and intimidated uh, a group of Tories that were rising there. Babcock had also served as an officer on other privateers, including as a first lieutenant on one of John Brown's privateers, so Brown knew who he was. Uh, Babcock would turn out to be a bold and sensible commander of the Marlboro, and I think one of the top privateer captives, captains in the war. 
Uh, he hired uh, most of his officers locally from local towns and most of his crew uh, was local as well, men who, who knew and trusted him. Here's the commission for the Marlboro and it's signed by Captain Babcock and, and the main investor, John Brown. Here's an image of a, a black privateers. And, um, I uh, show this because there were some black sailors who were on privateers. Uh, I came across one uh, uh, Rhode Island privateer that uh, clearly three of the 60 were uh, Africans, Americans, and um, probably more. Now, this is an interesting portrait. My father used to own this. Now I own it. Uh, and um, my father, uh, uh, it's appeared in a number of books, including one on black sailors. It's been shown in uh, museums. And he got an invitation to show it at a prominent museum here in New York. And he said, you know what? I'm going to have it x-rayed. And it turns out it's a fake. There was an article on it in the New Yorker magazine. And someone painted it in 1971. Someone painted on uh, black uh, paint. Um, and that was the first start of black history. So, uh, you know, my father didn't pay a huge amount for it. So uh, it's too bad it's fake. But I still think it's an important image because there's so few images of uh, black uh, military people uh, during the Revolutionary War. It's actually, uh, they originally it was of a French officer. So uh, and I'll donate it to uh, probably the Newport Historical Society. Now at the time Narragansett Bay was blockaded by uh, Royal Navy warships. Newport was occupied by the British Army. Uh, Brown and Bobcock had to find a way for Marlborough to uh, break through the blockade. Uh, the ship did so in a stormy night on Christmas Eve in 1777, but it was a real close call. Uh, the ship became grounded on a sandbar at one point. Babcock uh, then sailed his ship to Martha's Vineyard, <clears throat> where he enlisted uh, 24 more crew members. And finally, they departed for Africa on January 2nd, 1778. Here's a map of the movements in Narragansett Bay. Thus began the uh, extraordinary voyage of the Marlboro to Africa and back. What we know about the voyage is primarily from a ship's log kept by John Linscombe Boss, the captain's clerk who hailed from Newport. He uh, dutifully recorded the important events of each day. And here's the uh, cover of the uh, first page of the journal. And I, uh, it's held, uh, well, the microfilm is held by the National Historical Park at Morristown. And I contacted them and said, hey, I'd like to look at the original. There might be some something new. And it's always nice to see the original. I can take some pictures of it. They couldn't find it. It's lost. Uh -huh. So that was disappointing. The microfilm was probably made like around 1960. Uh, now, I'm not going to provide the details of the Voyage of the Marlboro to you. You have to read the book for that. Suffice it to say that it was a remarkable and from Brown and Babcock's perspective, successful voyage. Uh, the New England privateersmen were able to sack one of the top British slave trading forts in Africa. And they put it out of commission for more than five years. Uh, also, uh, Brown captured uh, four slave ships, put them out of commission. One of them went seas, had more than 300 captives on board and was about ready to sail for the British Caribbean just as Brown hoped. 
Uh, during their time on the coast of West Africa, Cap Babcock and his crew worked with several African leaders who cooperated with the uh, New Englanders. So they were usually they were intermediaries working with the British, but you know, they were independent. They wanted to show their independence as well from Britain, and they cooperated with the Americans. One of them was named King Tom, and he had served as an intermediary for European and American slip slave ship captains for decades. But suddenly he helps uh, this American ship with 20 guns to uh, take some British ships. Several British slave ship captains captured by Babcock greedily agreed to cooperate with the Americans by giving them valuable intelligence, even though that meant committing treason against their country. So they, the deal was they would get their slave ship back, but not the cargo or uh, any other slave people on board, but they could get their slave ship back if they cooperated with Americans, and they did so. Also, um, several uh, the prizes were sailed back to uh, America and uh, one of them was captured, uh, but the crew made a very daring escape and captured, jumped off a ship and uh, captured a small boat and were able to escape uh, back to Providence. Here's a, a very uh, appropriate image uh, of the, you know, the West African coast, really dominated by these canoe men. Uh, they, they would bring out uh, food and water, they, they would trade, and they would bring out captives as well. Here's a, an original pen and ink drawing done by a British slave ship captain. These are Fante warriors, uh, and they're taking um, uh, captives uh, that they captured in war, and they're taking them to the coast to, to trade to intermediaries for the slave trade. Most in this area, most of the slaves came because of the uh, there was a Muslim group called the Falut Jalan, and it was uh, engaged in wars against pagan tribes. And uh, a lot of those uh, pagan uh, tribesmen were uh, captured and carried to the coast. Here's uh, the fort that was sacked by. Uh, uh, Babcock and his crew. It's called uh, Isle de Los. Uh, you could see a, <clears throat> a ship with some cannon there. This was uh, about 15 years after they were sacked. So they were waiting for any other attempts to capture and sack the place. Here's a map of some of the voyages that uh, were described in the book. And of course, the main one by the uh, Marlborough. They uh, got a little lost and wound up in Canada when they should have been in New England on the way back, but it made the made for a more exciting voyage. They, they made more captures of privateers. It was kind of a, amusing uh, when they're out looking on sailing, they're looking for <clears throat> ships to capture and they see a sail in the distance and they all get excited and they're, you know, can't wait. And suddenly, oh, it's a Spanish ship where they're supposed to be our, our allies. We can't capture them. And then there's another one. Oh, Swedish ship. They're not our enemy. We can't capture them. All depressed. And they see another sail. They go after that after several days. And they see another sail getting closer and closer. There's no, no flag being shown. Suddenly the Union Jack has risen and they all cheer. Hooray! We can capture that ship. So the Marlboro damaged the British slave trade more than any other American privateer. In the last chapter of my book, I argue that the actions of the officers and sailors of the Marlboro, as well as those of other American privateersmen, 
who intercepted British slave ships at sea had a stunning unintended consequence. The British slave trade by 1778 had not only been disrupted, it had virtually collapsed. American privateersmen interfered with the conduct of the British slave trade to such an extent that British slave merchants substantially reduced their investments in African slave voyages. By 1778, the reduction was more than 70%. As a result, during the early years of the Revolutionary War, the number of enslaved Africans forcibly shipped across the Atlantic Ocean declined dramatically, perhaps as much as 60,000 and probably more. This is the first book to detail and emphasize the role of American privateers in disrupting the British slave trade. I have an Appendix B and an Appendix C that discuss uh, each of the captures. And, uh, there were 41 British slave ships with captives on board that were captured uh, by American privateersmen. And uh, some of those stories are, are pretty remarkable. Prominent British slave trade historians were, who reviewed my manuscript were <clears throat> surprised at the new material I found. Here's a, also original documents are part of my uh, research and findings. And this, you can see George Bob Babcock signed this. This is uh, orders to the prize ship captain of that ship that had 310 captives on board. And he made pretty clear, you know, try to get to a French colonial island, Martinique, primarily deal with such and such merchants. So there, there are more uh, original documents from that uh, voyage as well. And here's a map of the British Caribbean and Florida in the upper left. You can see uh, an enslaved man working with some uh, a barrel on the upper right, up there. And here in the uh, Caribbean, uh, Barbados is actually the uh, most uh, leeward island, the one closest to Africa. <clears throat> so a lot of the slave ships would head for that. Once they found there, they could figure out where they were going. But if they were going to uh, uh, Jamaica, you know, they arrive here at Barbados and they go all the way to Jamaica. That's another thousand miles. And that is a lot of pain and suffering for the captives on board. So, so that was that was tougher. Uh, on the other hand, on a personal level, the men of the Marlboro and the other American privateersmen desperately wanted to seize British slave ships filled with enslaved Africans for their own selfish and awful interests. When they did capture British slave ships, they became slave traders, hoping to sell their captives for as high a price as possible. They did not show compassion for the hundreds of captives crammed aboard British slave ships they captured or worry about the trauma the enslaved Africans had already suffered. Instead, the Americans sought to treat the captives the same as any non-human cargo seized on board an enemy ship. And while such a motive at the time was not seen uh, offensive by many Americans, it was by some, by today's standards, it's repugnant. The unintended beneficiaries of this war at sea on the slave trade were the Africans who otherwise might have been sold to white British slave ship captives and carried across the Atlantic Ocean. The officers and sailors on the Marlboro and other American privateers who intercepted the British slave ships wanted to harm British economic interests, no question. But at the same time, they wanted to enrich themselves. They did not have the humanitarian goal of helping Africans, far from it. Still, their actions did substantially reduce the African slave trade and prevent tens of thousands of Africans from becoming enslaved in the new world. This was a positive impact, even if the reductions were both unintended and temporary. The privateersmen can thus be uh, viewed as heroes or villains, 
for both. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, now I'd like to open the floor to our questions. Uh, anything from our audience and online, if you have any questions, please uh, feel free to put them in the Q and A. Any questions from here? Oops. Enlighten me. Thank Do you. Do you know the name of that African uh, military officer with of which you have the portrait? No. I don't. I saw on the list of the orders from the uh, Babcock, Captain Babcock. Or? Captain Babcock. On the top <clears throat> right hand column, I recognize Richard Allen. Was that the Richard Allen of Philadelphia? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he was, he came along in the 1780s and 90s, I think. And, <clears throat> how would they how would they actually get about to stop a ship because it's pretty tough I mean the ship has momentum keeps on going mm -hmm. they shoot back yeah well <clears throat> yeah it's interesting you know, a lot of these uh, privateers were smaller than these big merchant ships and you think if you think and some of the merchant ships actually carried a few cannons so how did this happen? Well, Babcock would just sail his ship alongside the merchant ship. It was a, he had a fast ship and he had uh, you know, a crew of uh, 96 men and boys. Uh, normally to sail a ship like that, even a slave ship, you might, uh, you know, you could probably get away with 15. Normally it had about 28 because they needed more to a security against an uprising among the captives. So normally you could have 15 people uh, sail that ship. The rest were to handle the cannon, to be ready to board the ship and attack the ship and give no quarter if they had to do that. So uh, the, the crews on board these merchant ships were not experienced military people, so they didn't have much of a, a chance. Other questions from the audience? Anybody else? Yeah, so, um... I'll wait for the microphone, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Britain was was had the slaves and they were going to the United States or colonies at the time and then No, they were mostly going to British colonies in the Caribbean. Oh, Jamaica, British. Antigua, Barbados. That's where almost all of them went. Okay, More than two million. Yeah. America got about um, you know under five hundred thousand. And when the privateers took them, they basically just took them in. And well, they originally meant to go to British plantation owners, right? Right. <clears throat> but they would capture the ships and then bring them back typically to um, a French colonial possessions. And those colonial possessions like Mar Martinique, Guadeloupe, they had their own plantation culture. So the white plantation owners needed to buy the captives. They paid very low prices. They knew the Americans were up against it and didn't have much of a market. Right. <clears throat> Another interesting aspect is that the Marlboro itself had 27 enslaved people on board when it returned. And what happened to those people? There, and there were laws too in the uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, you couldn't, you had to treat uh, any uh, 
African captive or uh, enslaved person as a regular prisoner. You couldn't just sell them. So they were bound by that law when they returned to New Bedford. Uh, so they, they had to be very secret. Um, can you share? I, I'm not sure how the American Revolution had any, um, affected the, the slave trade. I, I, that, that was very confusing because it seems to me that the slaves were almost incidental. That the, the one white power against another white power, and the slaves being the commodity of the prize. Yeah, well, that was certainly the case, <clears throat> uh, but. Before the American Revolution, there was no organized opposition or voices against the slave trade. It was just seen, it, this has been done for a thousand years now. The African slave trade was something different and much more horrible. But uh, there was no opposition. But because of the American Revolution, its reliance on freedom and uh, liberty and don't, you know, they would even say, uh, you British crown, you're trying to enslave me. Uh, and then they, you know, so the Americans, white Americans started looking around and said, wait a minute, we're actually enslaving people in our own midst. They don't deserve this. All, all men are free. So that kind of rhetoric did play into the Northern states freeing slave, uh, you know, ending slavery eventually okay. and, and ending the slave trade. So, so it was the, the Americans who were themselves, the white Americans themselves, who were feeling enslaved. They were uh, because they thought the king was trying to oppress them. But then they realized, wait a minute, we actually have real slaves here. You know, we don't need to. Those are kind of strong words when they're not. Obviously, we're not actually enslaved. Uh, but uh, no, I think the American, the re rhetoric of the American Revolution led to the first time in world history of ending, uh, you know, the institution of slavery in some states and uh, so that was, you know, uh, that definitely an advance. But slavery still exists in the world today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any other questions? Oh, uh, we got one more from online. Um, uh, was the Rhode Island and Connecticut Anti-Slave Act in 1774 the first in the colonies? Well, the um, in 1774, the uh, uh, Rhode Island uh, passed the law ending the slave trade. Well, I should take that back. Ending imports of African captives into Rhode Island. <clears throat> and then uh, Moses Brown was probably really behind that. And he had uh, some friends in Connecticut, so got them to pass the law too. Uh, that was uh, probably the first major anti-slavery uh, law passed in possibly in the Western world. Um, you know, that was, that was pretty impressive. Now, the tried to end slavery uh, in 17, uh, in that that same legislation, but they weren't able to do it. Uh, and they were able to say, hey, um, Rhode Islanders, you cannot participate in the slave trade in 1787. That was pretty early. But unfortunately, a lot of Rhode Islanders did not comply with that rule. And it wasn't until the slave trade ended at the federal level in 1808 that it really uh, you know, ended for the most part. Any more questions? Okay, Krishna, I'm going to take your place. All right. Thank you so much.
Um, again, thank you, Christian, uh, for that wonderful presentation. And thank you all for joining us here tonight in person or online. Um, if you joined tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date uh, with all of our programs, you can join our mailing list by going to francistavernmuseum.org. Um, there you'll find our calendar of upcoming programs, including our next two events. Um, on October 13th, uh, two of our exhibitions are coming together in one event. Uh, we are celebrating the publishing of the book of Cloak Crusader, George Washington in Comics and Pop Culture, uh, which opened a year ago today. You passed it uh, in our out outside gallery when you walked in here. Um, uh, Lenore Zahn uh, will be joining us along with some other special guests. Uh, Ms. Zahn voices Rogue from the comic series X-Men and is a former member of parliament and the House of Commons in Canada. Uh, during her time there, she spearheaded the funding for the Black uh, Loyalist Heritage Center. Uh, the center and its museum explore the lives of Black loyalists who left America to settle Birchtown in Nova Scotia at the end of the Revolutionary War. Those same Black loyalists feature prominently in our latest permanent exhibition, The Birch Trials at Francis Tavern, located here in our Davis Educational Center, uh, just to your right. Uh, but Thursday, October 26th, we'll be host, uh, hosting Brooke Barbier, uh, author of Huzzah, Drinking with John Hancock During the American Revolution. Uh, Miss Barbier will relay uh, lively and evocative stories uh, and Im images that illustrate the critical and complex role that alcohol played in the social, political, and cultural fabric of the lives of the American Revolution and how John Hancock used it to his advantage. Um, thank you to those who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Area with the public. Um, if you'd like to donate, you can also do that on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. Uh, thank you again for joining us here at the museum. Uh, book sales will happen at the back of the room on site. And if you couldn't make it tonight, uh, you can come to our bookshop and whatever's left over will definitely be for sale after tonight. Uh, thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Good night.